The UN says that humanity stands on the brink of catastrophic man-made climate change. But is it true? Not a chance. But we do stand on the brink of catastrophic government policies that threaten to ruin the nation our forefathers built and defended against tyranny. So what drives the climate scare, Jay? Besides simple ignorance, the scare is driven by corporate greed and the desire of governments to control all aspects of our lives, Tom. Is this part of something more sinister? Indeed it is. Whether it's climate change or a pandemic or socialism, it really means sacrificing your rights and accepting the tyranny of the fourth branch of government, the bureaucracy. It must be stopped. This is The Other Side of the Story with Dr. Jay Lair and Tom Harris of the International Climate Science Coalition. On Earth Day, Virginia Democratic Congressman Don Baer, chair of the U.S. Congress Joint Economic Committee, fanned the flames of climate alarmism when he made what will go down as one of the most absurd public proclamations ever. Congressman Bayer said, our failure to address climate change will have devastating consequences, not just for the environment, for, but for our economy. It's essential that we invest in climate change right now. This will create good jobs that will help us mitigate the environmental impacts. It's what we need to do for the future. And ultimately, when we get to a non-carbon future, we will be able to grow much more quickly than we did before. This is the existential crisis of our century, of our generation. Jay, what do you think of what Congressman Bayer said, especially his desire for a non-carbon future? Well, I am totally convinced the congressman is a moron. I would <laughs> define that as somebody with an IQ probably below 65. Uh, he knows nothing of what he's talking about. And of course, what he's saying, if it were put into play, would be the end of life as we know it. It would be an existential threat, but it will not happen, and it is not. But we also wrote an article that was published this week at America Out Loud, more or less introducing what was going on in Virginia and pointing out that Ryan Nichols would be on our show uh, as he is uh, today. Ryan Nichols is vice president of operations of the CO2 Coalition, a 501c3 organization created for the purpose of educating thought leaders, policymakers, and the public about the important contribution made by carbon dioxide to our lives and the economy. Ryan drafted the secretarial order on critical minerals for the Department of the Interior and wrote portions of the executive order on critical minerals that was issued in 2017. He also was the point of contact for the Federal List of Critical Miner Minerals, which was published in the Federal Registry. Ryan has also served on the drafting committee for the Invasive Species Strategic Report at the Department of the Interior, which, of course, ties very well to climate change. So welcome to the show, Ryan. Well, thank you so much for having me. Yeah. Well, Ryan, I'm going to start off with a mea culpa. Uh, I owe you an apology. I well, sort of I stole your fabulous paper that you did for the government on strategic minerals and turned it into a couple of articles that I wrote. I think somewhere in the article, I credited your paper, but it was fabulous. And I, as I said, wrote a few articles on it. So I, I know your work and how meticulous it is and 
am really excited to learn more about what you're doing in your new role. So start off for our listeners and explain what is the CO2 coalition and, and what it does. Yeah, great. We are a coalition of scientists. It was formed in 2015. We now number 94 members and growing. And these scientists come together to educate thought leaders and policymakers and also the general public about how important the contribution is made by carbon dioxide to our lives and and how beneficial it is to the economy as well. And here we say there is no climate crisis. And we say human-made CO2 is not a significant contributor to climate. As a matter of fact, it's overwhelmed by natural forces. And we we say we love CO2, and you should too. The verbiage you've used is very precise, and it's nice that you're, you're not waltzing around the subject, you're telling it just as it is. And we were honored to have had one of your members, uh, Dr. Will Happer, on the show a few weeks ago, and uh, he echoed those very things. And he's one of the best-known physicists, really, in the world. His major area is optics, but he's emeritus at, at Princeton University. And I've known Will for many, many years, and I remember having conversations with him years ago where he didn't seem to be quite as strong in saying just what you saying, that carbon dioxide is a good thing and it contributes, really creates life on Earth. And it was exciting to hear all the things he said, and it reflected so well on the carbon dioxide coalition. And in fact, what is obvious to me is that your members have had an impact on him and he's able to really send that message wherever he goes uh, to speak or write. And it's, it's really terrific. Yeah. He, he had the opportunity well, to serve in the white house too. And he, he made a big impact in there as well. So we're yeah, thrilled we, to have we, him as our chairman. Yeah, we did. Oh, I didn't realize he was the chairman. That's, that's terrific. And, uh, we know all about his year at the White House, and it was interesting to get a little in-depth view of uh, what goes on there. It's not pretty. Well, uh, Ryan, what are your responsibilities at the CO2 Coalition? Yeah, as the Vice President of Operations, I make sure things operate smoothly. I do important tasks like strategic planning and doing budgeting. Uh, I'm also the Secretary and the Treasurer of the organization as well, so I wear multiple hats. But I also handle the more basic logistics of actually managing the day-to-day operations and helping design a new logo and a new website. I hope people take a chance to visit co2coalition.org and check out our new website design. And uh, I even get into things like our education committee. We have a new set of products coming out. Our first comic book for K through five children in grade school uh, is entitled Once Upon a Time, and that's just going to come out. And we have many other products in the works. So I, I do a variety of things and all of it's very fun. Yeah. In fact, I'll give the website again. It's co2coalition.org. And it is truly a beautiful site. Maybe the most attractive site I've seen on this topic anywhere. We've also had your, I guess, executive director, Greg Wrightstone, on the program some months ago. So is he the actual senior person in the office and representing the coalition as he travels around the country lecturing? That's correct. Greg Wrightstone is our executive director, and 
he loves to do media interviews and he, he loves to travel around and, and go to conferences where, whenever he's invited. It's amazing. And he had one conference that he did, I believe, 22 or more interviews. I lost track after 22. It was just <laughs> astonishing. Jeez. <laughs> well, he, he loves it. He has a very big personality. Uh, he's got a great command of the language and is a uh, phenomenal representative for the coalition. And Tom and I both marvel at what you just said, and we're not surprised. 22 interviews in uh, at one conference. You're fighting a difficult battle in Virginia, and we'll we'll get on and talk of all the work you do all over the country. But right now, with the article that uh, Tom and I wrote at AmericaOutloud.com about the Democratic congressman that was quoted with things that are purely insane, how does the coalition calmly uh, battle that sort of thing? I mean, what, what would you put out as a press release in opposition to how he has been published recently? Yeah, so we're based here in Virginia, and we're certainly keeping abreast, and not only keeping abreast of everything going on, but actively creating work here to try to provide information to, to people in Virginia and certainly legislators as well. Uh, now, although as a 501c3, we don't specifically support or oppose specific pieces of legislation, we do, however, provide a lot of scientific information and legislators can pick that up and use it. As a matter of fact, we visited Richmond, the capital of Virginia, and distributed our Virginia and climate change paper, uh, where we show that there is no crisis that justifies their climate legislation. So we, we delivered that paper and it was well received. Uh, and so we've been keeping up, up to speed with executive orders. For example, the executive order issued by the, the new governor, Yonkin, uh, and his desire to remove the state from the regional greenhouse gas initiative. So there's a lot of moving pieces, which we can get into it, as you wish. And, um, and we're actively educating people as we can. Do you think he'll actually help help withdraw from the Virginia Clean Economy Act as well? Yeah, I think, of course, he needs legislative support in the Senate and the House to do that. But I, I certainly think that he would do that. Mm -hmm. Now, I just give it give everybody, optimistic. Yeah, <laughs> give everybody the title. Our piece, which was published on May 10th yesterday, as we're doing the recording, it's called The Ignorance of Politicians Wishing for a Non-Carbon Future is Insane. <laughs> and the uh, editor actually made a really interesting thing contrasting a carbon world with a non-carbon world. And of course, the non-carbon world shows everything dead. So the whole idea that we're going to move to a non-carbon world, as Congressman Bayer said, is, is completely crazy. The cartoon teaches that uh, the world without carbon dioxide is completely unfeasible. And, and that is a point that we can make to kindergartners quite effectively using the cartoon. And, and it certainly yeah, is one I guess we need to make to congressmen as well. Yeah, I find it amazing how the appendix for 1984, you might remember it talked about Newspeak, how they would choose the language and ban certain words and promote other words, which would help shape the thinking uh, pattern of the population. And I think that the environmentalists are doing this, don't you, Ryan, when they talk about carbon pollution? I absolutely agree, yeah. I, I, even for myself, coming into college, I wasn't fully educated on energy and climate policy, as I think many college students are not. And so when I was first learning how, how various environmental leaders were saying that, you know, 
giving people carbon-free energy is like giving a machine gun to an idiot child or, or, or just using all this extremist rhetoric. Um, it, it was alarming to me that these extreme views are out there with the, the left, particularly with the environmentalist left, and um, they do control the language. So when I was learning that carbon dioxide is actually plant food, and it actually is, of course, inserted into greenhouses to help plants grow, it's, of course, inserted into our beverages to create carbonated beverages. And it was starting to sink in that this isn't exactly pollution. And I, I believe if our EPA treated carbon dioxide independently, I, I would love to see what the result of that scientific uh, finding would be. I, I don't think we would have the same endangerment finding that we do have today. Your own executive director in a conversation I had him with him recently was somewhat optimistic that the endangerment finding that says carbon dioxide is a pollutant might uh, be overturned in the near future. That was exciting to hear. I'm the world's leading optimist, but I'm not sure I'm that optimistic about it. But you used a quote about the idiot child and the machine gun, and that was stated by Paul Ehrlich, a leftist, uh, actually a butterfly biologist many, many years ago. And it related to the fact that if we had very cheap energy, it would be the same as putting a machine gun in the hands of an idiot child. So everything Ehrlich did was trying to run up the cost of energy. So not everybody would be able to use it. And uh, there are unfortunately too many in his army that are presenting that. And uh, that's basically what the, the left is doing. So it's uh, exciting to have an organization like the CO2 Coalition, which spends uh, all of its funding and all of its energy trying to right that wrong. Tom and I have just decided that we're going to come out with a single slice of paper with 10, 10 logical points on it that will convince anybody of the absurdity that carbon dioxide is a bad thing and that we want to get rid of it and go to this net zero thing. We think the simplest way of promoting things is the best. So we can't wait to get the comic book that the CO2 Coalition is putting out. When will we get to see it, Ryan? Well, it is available on our website, and I believe it's now available on Amazon.com as a downloadable book to Kindle as in electronic form. And I believe we're still working on uh, making that available for purchase online. I, we have not quite reached that step, but that's next. Mm -hmm. So that's co2coalition.org. Now it's interesting in Canada, a few, few uh, prime ministers ago, they decided to add carbon dioxide to the list of toxic substances under the Canadian Environmental Protection Act, because then they could actually control it with legislation. And it's quite, quite funny because they had PCBs and lead and mercury and things like that in the list. And when they get to carbon dioxide, they write carbon dioxide. And then in brackets, this is not a toxic substance in their list of toxic substances. <laughs> so a lot of it is like 1984 wow. newspeak. I mean, it is, is completely crazy. I read the report that you put out on Virginia that was focused on all things environmental uh, temperature, carbon dioxide, yields of corn. And I was quite fascinating uh, with the three graphs that 
should convince anybody in Virginia that anything these congressmen want to do in ridding us of fossil fuels uh, is ridiculous. They, there were three graphs. One was on temperature. One was on uh, corn yield. I can't remember the other one. But one that really struck me is that you went back 100 years in the temperature of the atmosphere in Virginia, and it was warmer in 1919 than 2019. Uh, speak to our listeners about the data that you've collected to show Virginia residents of the wrongness of the legislature trying to do things that are damaging to the citizens. Yeah, thank you. This is quite a robust report. We call it Virginia and climate change. And we're separating fact from fiction. That's right on our cover. And I, I do agree that the uh, pretty striking graphs include one that's of corn yield and bushels per acre. And it goes from approximately 25 up to, I believe it's about 140 or 150. And that is all during a time of slight warming and of course, slight increases in carbon dioxide concentration. And uh, I'm not seeing these detrimental effects that, that, that some environmentalists would pr predict and predict. I'm also looking at the Virginia precipitation. We've had very wet years in the past few years here in Virginia, and I, I'm not seeing any alarming trends there either. The models are running hot, as is the case whenever I look at climate models, they, they typically run hotter than what the actual measured temperatures are. And that is the case here in Virginia. We have what we call the Virginia summer Tmax graph, and it shows a fairly stable temperature measurement, but then shows the models predicting that the warming will go quite, quite a lot warmer than it has. We even get down into landfalling hurricanes. Those have been on the decline and global crop, crop yields are up, but then specifically to Virginia, I, I just would add that the uh, percentage of the stations that were achieving all-time record high temperatures in the past decade, we haven't been setting many temperature records in terms of all-time highs. And if you look at the 1930s, you'll see some of the biggest heat records set in that decade. That's quite a warm decade. We're not seeing this out of control warming that is being predicted by some of these models. I have one complaint with the one thing, one of the things you just said, when you talk about models, you were pointing out that they run too hot. You should be pointing out that they're absurd. They have no basis in science or fact. We were delighted last week to have Patrick Michaels on our show, and he is clearly a modeling expert. And we really uh, made it clear that one should not be paying any attention to any climate model that produces any temperature a decade or a half a century from now, because they make no sense. They are mathematical equations ginned up by people getting money from the government to prove that man is warming the earth by using fossil fuels. And they're, they're nothing but guesses. I mean, when you really dig into what they are, they are a joke. And I think that your coalition and uh, Tom and I working with the International Climate Science Coalition that we too often mince our words when we talk seriously about models. They do not deserve to be talked seriously about. They are a joke. 
made up to say whatever the government, the funder, uh, wants the modeler to make. They, there are over 100 models financed in, at academic institutions by the government. And I think rather than the coalition saying they run too hot, they are a joke and they're meaningless regardless of what they said. Uh, that's something you might consider in the future, Brian. Yeah, thank you. I, I've talked to Dr. Michaels about this, and he says that what you get out of a model is, of course, determined by what you put into it. So the, the problem really is climate model tuning, which allows these scientists to generate what they'd call an acceptable result by simply adjusting the parameters. So you're right that these can be, they can be adjusted to such an extreme that they're adjusting it to what just producing what they wanted to begin with. Yeah, it strikes me that so, if you had a stockbroker who every time they made a forecast and told you what to buy, they lost money for you, you would fire them pretty quickly. I mean, you wouldn't keep them as your advisor. And yeah. yet governments are using these models, which overpredict, according to Craig Idso, by 300%. They're using these models to base literally $100 billion policy decisions. So, I mean, this has got to be exposed. And, you know, I'm really glad that you folks are doing it. Can you tell us how is CO2 Coalition funded and can our listeners help? Well, thank you for that. Of course, the listeners are free to help. I, I keep mentioning our website. I feel like I'm repeating that. And there is a donate button on there. We are a 501c3. So all gifts would be greatly appreciated of any size. And they are fully tax deductible according to the law. And we are funded by individual citizens of the country. We also do receive money from some businesses and some charitable foundations. And that, that collection of money has grown over the past year, I'm happy to say. So people are really appreciating, appreciating our work and, and we look forward to continuing to come up with new projects and, and find more supporters as we go forward. Do you find that it's in any way risky for you? I mean, I've heard of scientists getting death threats and, and you know, there were bullet holes shot through John Christie's window. I mean, is it something that you find is personally dangerous? Personally, I would not say that I'm afraid when I come to work. We do have a camera that records everyone in our hallway, and uh, I haven't seen anything that would cause me an alarm. We haven't received any threats, physical threats of violence or anything of that nature. I know that other organizations in this city of Washington, D.C. have. So we, we just need to be careful. And I'm certainly not going to shy away from telling the truth about climate. I'm not going yeah. to be intimidated. Have you ever gone to a Greenpeace meeting and got up and told them, or any meeting like that, and got up and told them reality? Or is that worthwhile doing? <laughs> One funny story is that when I worked for another organization years ago, I was at a climate conference I would even say that I met my wife at an uh, UN IPCC climate conference uh -huh. and uh, she's in agreement with me on, on the science. And I was asked to dress as a polar bear and a Greenpeace <laughs> activist didn't like the sign that I was holding, which stated, we're doing just fine. I, I was speaking for the polar bears. We're doing just fine. The populations are stable and growing. Yeah. And so yeah. she actually did come up and attempt to get into a physical altercation with me, but fortunately nothing happened of it. But she she <laughs> yeah, was quite upset with me. Yeah. You probably know of Susan Crockford out of, she was previously University of Victoria in British Columbia, where she yeah. studies polar bears and she shows that, like you say, they're doing very well indeed. <laughs> they are. Yeah. And oh, she's a great uh, researcher. You know, I have been involved in climate since 1975 when I uh, read a few 
news magazines, U.S. News and War Report, Time, and Newsweek. And between 1975 and 1976, all of them had cover stories of the coming Ice Age. And that interested me because I, I didn't see any evidence of it and I doubted it. So I got involved in 1975. And then, of course, as you know, it shifted to global warming because evidently the leader of, of the movement felt that global warming somehow or other uh, would scare people more. And it was never about science. It isn't about science now. It's all about politics. It's all about the destruction of capitalism and the institution of socialism in place of capitalism. And I don't think we talk about that enough as well. And I know most of the members of your organization are scientists and they try to avoid politics. But I don't think you really should avoid it or can avoid it because it's not about the science. Now, what kind of things in that area do you and your members uh, talk about getting into the politics, not getting into the politics and so on? Yeah, it's a fairly regular discussion about how we navigate giving scientific input into the policymaking process without getting into the politics itself. And we, we've tried to draw that fine line about certainly being, being available if, if any elected official is seeking input and seeking to know more about the science, we're happy to, to go and give briefings to whomever would like them. And that's open to anybody. Um, however, uh, you know, we're clearly against carbon taxes and things like that and cap and trade systems. But we have tried to draw the line where we say we want to stick to the science. We're uniquely positioned in having such an embarrassment of riches of these scientists who have amazing credentials like National Academy of Sciences and chairman of major atmospheric science departments like Dr. Richard Lindzen at MIT. We like to use that weight to, to put, put that scientific message forward because we believe we're uniquely positioned to do it. Well, on that note, we have to go to a commercial. We'll be right back with Ryan Nichols, Vice President of Operations of the CO2 Coalition. Here on America Out Loud, we emphasize optimal health, and air is the most essential element for life. The average person inhales over 35 pounds of air every day, yet we seldom think about how to rid the air of pathogens swiftly and safely when we need to. The Genesis Fogger Plus HOCL is the only way to quickly and naturally restore air to its optimal condition. Visit genesisfogger.com forward slash out loud for a free ebook on everything you need to know about HOCL and receive a 15% discount on the Genesis Fogger with promo code OUTLOUD. With Genesis, you'll be ready for what's next. Oral hygiene hasn't changed in 50 years. Brush, floss, repeat. We're told to use fluoride, which doesn't really address the acid-creating bacteria. That is where the dentist-recommended Spry Dental Defense System shines. Spry products contain xylitol, a natural sugar, which helps get rid of those nasty, smelly, acid-creating bacteria in our mouth. The best way to care for your teeth and gums is by using Spry. The Spry Dental Defense System has a wide variety of products. Toothpaste, mouthwash, mints, and chewing gums that are designed to work together to keep your teeth clean and mouth healthy and smelling sweet all day long. To get your oral care back on track, 
in an easy, effective, and very tasty way. Switch to Spry today. Ask your dentist about Xylitol and the Spry products. Spry can be found online and at all fine natural product retailers. How the spirit of American liberty and justice is woven into the soul of America out loud. Now we invite you, friends, to invest some of your time with our magnificent family of experts, their minds and voices. It's all back at AmericaOutloud.com. Liberty and justice for all. If you're like me, you'd like life to return to some kind of normal. You're burned out on the precautions, but deep down you still want to avoid getting sick. You've heard it talked about time and again by respected medical professionals. Use a povidone iodine antiviral nasal spray. Made in the USA, Cofix RX reduces viral loads and minimizes the risk of you getting sick. Find a retailer near you or click our banner ad on AmericaOutloud.com and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off. Trouble getting to sleep and staying asleep can be infuriating. Your mind races. You toss and turn, and the harder you try, the harder it is to drift off. And today's digital age makes it even harder. You're not alone with this struggle. Poor sleep affects over 70% of Americans. Even the Centers for Disease Control label insufficient sleep a public health epidemic. To take back your sleep, Healthy Cell has created REM Sleep, the only sleep supplement made to support all four stages of human sleep with calming herbs, amino acids, and sleep hormone support delivered in a patent-pending, pill-free, ultra-absorption microgel formula that tastes great. Fall asleep, stay asleep, sleep deeply, and wake up refreshed with Healthy Cell's REM Sleep. Go to HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off your first order. That's HealthyCell.com, H-E-A-L-T-H-Y-C-E-L-L, and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off. We're back with Ryan Nichols, Vice President of Operations of the CO2 Coalition, an excellent group operating out of the United States. Jay, you had a question for Ryan. I do, Ryan. I consider the CO2 Coalition the most auspicious of all scientific groups that are fighting for truth and reality to explain to the public that carbon dioxide is uh, life-giving and we don't have too much of it, and there's nothing to fear about additional carbon dioxide emissions from the burning of fossil fuel. And the world's largest organization that is putting forth the lies is the International Panel on Climate Change. And I know that the, your coalition has had some members that have done some work with the IPCC. And I'd like you to explain to our listeners what the IPCC is and why and how some of your members might have interacted with it. Yes, Gregory Wrightstone, our executive director, was an expert reviewer for the IPCC. And also another member, Dr. Richard Lindzen of MIT, has served as an IPCC author. And I have gone to these conferences to the parties, as they're called, and these, these big get-togethers that are held worldwide to discuss these scientific findings and try to push for certain climate treaties. And I know that the IPCC publishes climate assessment reports, and I will say that there is some good science in there. However, it's all blurred out by the fact that 
what people are actually reading, what lay people are reading, and even what leaders of the countries are reading are the summary for policymakers. And that's actually a report written and agreed to by political delegates that are chosen. So that is actually not a purely scientific process. And what Dr. Lindzen has said is that basically the summary does not accurately reflect what the science says. It really understates that there's great uncertainty associated with the climate models and with the science itself. And that really needs to be brought up that the, the, even the science contained within the IPCC reports itself shows a, a, quite a bit of uncertainty. Yeah, I also understand that the science reports have to be tuned later to agree with the summary for policymakers, and surely that's backwards. Let me jump in there, Tom and Ryan. For our audience, the word tuned is a science technological term that means cheating, (laughs) nothing more. When the numbers (laughs) don't come out the way you want them to, you change them until they do, and scientists who are very poor scientists call what they do tuning, which is in fact simply cheating. I have just begun a a series of articles. I was asked by the National Association of Scholars, uh, a group uh, relatively newly formed, to try to recapture Uh, good science, the scientific method from what is going on in publications. And I'm writing a a three-page, a three-part series on it, the first of which was published at uh, cfact.org this week. CFACT stands for the Committee for Constructive Tomorrow. And I'm explaining that uh, science has lost its credibility because so little of it can be reproduced. We really have a crisis in reproducibility and uh, scientists come up with equations. They come up with a system to reproduce their own work, but not allowing any other scientists to reproduce their work or even showing them the data they work from. And this terrible science, which uses this tuning or cheating process is sadly used by the federal government to create regulations based on terrible science. And you've just described, Ryan, what goes on with the International Panel of Climate Change. There are good scientists that contribute good science, and it's totally ignored by the summary reports they put out, some very voluminous, that is a political report given the results that are, frankly, uh, lies, and quite a few members, science members of the IPC, have resigned as a result, frankly, not nearly uh, as many as should. The International Panel on Climate Change was never put together to figure out what are the variables that control the climate of the Earth. Its mandate was to determine what man's impact on his climate is. So anything that doesn't relate to our role, which is absolutely insignificant, uh, is not put in the reports. So people have a very wrong idea of it. 
I completely agree that the IPCC was created with the intent of showing that man has an impact. It, it, it started with the conclusion already baked into it. So I agree that that's a concern with the way that they operate. Mm-hmm. Now, you, while you're focused in Virginia, you work all over the U.S. Is that right, Ryan? Yes, that is exactly right. We travel to conferences and meetings. Like we went to the International Conference on Climate Change, which was out in Las Vegas. And we visited the EarthX conference, which I believe is the largest environmental conference in the world. And that was in Dallas, Texas recently. And our executive director was actually invited to speak at one of the events there. Mm-hmm. Now, what would and you so say? We're active all over the place. Yeah. Now, what would be your next projects that are coming up that listeners would be interested to hear about? Yeah, we have a lot in the works. We, we'd like to get some more interviews of our members out there. We'd like to create some more educational videos. I'm a member of this education committee that we have, and we have our members contribute a lot of great scientific facts and and help us package it in a way in particular that we can reach out to young people. We see that as really a key way to go forward is to find materials that particularly might uh, appeal to people who are homeschooled or people who are in private schools. I know it's, it's a very different hurdle to get over to get materials into the public school system, although that would be something we'd like to do in the future as well. We're actually planning a series of four comic books, and we've already got stories drafted for those. And the first one, as I mentioned, is printed. So you'll expect to see that soon. We we have other videos. We have a team here of communication staff that put together other videos talking about a a variety of issues that pop up, uh, such as the the claim by the... um, World Meteorological Organization that natural disasters had increased by five times. We put together a video with a member, Kip Hansen, and he discovered that it was in fact an increase in the reporting of the disasters that had increased significantly, (laughs) not not the disasters themselves. He had corresponded with the International Disaster Database who put these figures together and the staff confirmed there that it was in fact an increase in reporting. Yeah, that reminds me of I challenged the CBC, the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, to whom we give uh, over a billion dollars in taxpayers' money in Canada. It's essentially the state-sponsored broadcaster. They were saying that there was a consensus of world scientists that we have a climate crisis. So I challenged them. I said, show me this consensus. And the ombudsman finally got back to me with a 10-page letter in which he showed this huge consensus about science. The problem was he didn't interview a single scientist or interview a single scientific organization. He showed there was a consensus in the media that there was a consensus in the science. <laughs> so I wrote back to the yeah. president. I said, well, yeah, there's a consensus in the media, but where is this consensus in the science? He said, I'm very satisfied with Mr. Baze's report. The case is closed. So that's our media. Yeah, they make just make it up. Another unique angle would be from our new research associate, Vijay Jayaraj, and he's great. He lives in the country of India, and he provides a unique perspective on the developing world. And really that unique angle that some of these changes that the Green New Deal would would usher in and some of these other what I consider to be radical proposals uh, really have a detrimental effect on the developing world, particularly the world's poor. Uh, increasing energy costs is certainly not good for anybody. And I know in his native country of, of India, the leadership has simply said, we're going to continue to build these plants, these coal-fired power plants. We need this affordable energy to develop our nation. And that, that's a good choice for that country to make for their own needs. And 
we need to provide that that perspective of how the world's poor are actually being harmed by some of these policies. Yeah, it seems that the closer you are to starvation and concerned about your very basic survival, the less you're concerned about climate change. There's been a, a survey done every other year, Sweden or Denmark, polling people on one of their major concerns in terms of life and politics. And they rate about 17 different issues. One is, of course, sanitation, uh, water supply, things like that. And climate change for the last decade has come out last among 17 concerns. So people are losing their, their worries while the left keeps multiplying the fears as best they can. And really, that makes me feel somewhat optimistic that they're, they're getting crazy. Uh, they're really worried that their story is uh, no longer having impact on the public. For instance, in the American midterm elections this coming November of over 500 House seats, I'm sure that we're going to have uh, the majority of the Democratic candidates will be rattling sabers and trying to instill fear for their voters and saying, if you don't elect me, uh, the world's going to go to hell in a handbasket because of global warming. And there'll be much less of that on the side of the Republicans. In fact, I'd venture to say for those that are new running for seats, there'll be none of that. And I think we're going to see a real uh, technical divide in, on that particular issue. I'm really confident that uh, it's, it's peaked and it's starting to go downhill. And as gasoline prices go up, electric prices go up, our uh, garbage waste disposal just went up. They're, they're charging a surcharge because of the increased gas prices. Uh, it's going to start pinching everybody, and people are going to get very serious. Now, Tom, a few moments ago, you mentioned a story of someone saying, case closed, we know the answer. There is no such thing in science as case closed. We're always moving closer to closer to the truth. In, in mathematics, certain equations uh, cannot be argued with. But with regard to most of life, science is a continual search for the truth. And the mm -hmm. case is never closed. We're always looking for more information to refine things. And the fact that the left is saying we are having a negative impact on the earth because of carbon dioxide emissions should be the key to the public to understand uh, they're into politics, not science. Mm -hmm. Yeah, in fact, truth doesn't even apply to science. If you, if you actually go back, I'd like your comment on this, Ryan. You know, we go back to Plato and he defined truth as something that was universal. It applied everywhere. It was necessary. It had to be that way. There could be no other possibility. And it was certain. It was 100% probability. It was in the bank. You know, like two plus two equals four or how the chess pieces move on a chessboard. Those satisfy those conditions of universal, necessary, and certain. But it strikes me that climate change in particular, I mean, it's so complicated. It certainly doesn't satisfy this criteria for truth, does it, Ryan? I think you're right. It's incredibly complicated. I don't think humans currently completely comprehend how the climate works. As, as I've spoken to the members, I mean, we're talking about two fluids. You've got 
the air flows and you have the oceans, which constitute approximately 70% of the land surface. And th those are interacting with each other in very complex ways. You have the solar energy coming in that certainly plays a large part. Even something seemingly simple as clouds, maybe seemingly simple to a layperson, but those scientists who study it understand it's actually quite complex. The clouds uh, are, are changing dynamically and that is very hard to understand even. So, uh, you know, I, I would just go back to the fact that science must produce empirical measurable objective facts and it has to be able to be tested. You have to come up with a hypothesis and you need to be able to replicate your scientific studies and, and it has to have the potential of being disproven. And so what we're seeing with some of these alarmists is they're not meeting those scientific credentials. And yeah. uh, th that's not very solid science if, if you can't, if you can't so meet the whole concept, those criteria. Yeah. So the whole concept of an inconvenient truth, truth, what? Oh, come on. It doesn't apply to science. In fact, it's funny, Dr. Tim Ball, whenever he's called a skeptic, he says, thank you. Because science is supposed to be about skepticism. You're supposed to question, you know, not just accept an absolute truth. Yeah from some authority. I think everybody listening in should go to your website, see the comic book and order a copy. I know that Tom and I are gonna do that. And you also have an, another book that's fabulous. Your executive director, Greg Wrightstone has uh, written a book. I think the title is Convenient Facts or is it uh, bearing on the title? Inconvenient of Facts. Inconvenient, okay. So I suppose it bears on the title of Al Gore's horrible book back in the early uh, 90s. Tell us a little more about Greg's book. And I understand it's been popular around the world, and I assume uh, people could buy it inexpensively at your website. They can buy it inexpensively on Amazon.com. Uh, I don't believe we offer it on our own website. Uh, however, it is the science that Al Gore doesn't want you to know. And it, it actually dovetails nicely into what you mentioned about creating a list of, of facts that are very easy for people to understand, because that really is what Greg did in this book. He put together 60 facts that everybody should know about the climate. And it's written in a way that the average person can read. You don't need a scientific background to understand those facts. And I actually was able to listen to it on Audible. It's a service I found on Amazon, and I was actually able to listen to it for free. And of course, I also recommend that you buy a copy and even give it to some friends. Now there's a companion app. It's a smartphone app and that's called Inconvenient App. And that has those 60 facts and the corresponding infographics that go along with it. So that would be perfect for something like a cocktail party. If somebody says, you know, I've heard that polar bears are about to go extinct. And then you can quickly pull out your phone and say, well, actually, if you look at the population of polar bears, it's actually increased quite substantially. And, and they're not really at risk of going extinct. Just to, to name one fact that there's, Many others on a variety of topics on sea level rise and, and temperature and the like. But uh, yeah, I would highly recommend that people read that book. I'm totally incapable of not talking about climate change in any social group I'm in, whether it's a cocktail party or sitting in intermission of a play or some kind of athletic contest. I, I can't help myself, but raising the issue, trying to get a little interest and then laying out some simple facts about it. And I don't know that in my brief conversations at social events, I convince people that what they've been reading daily in the newspaper is false. But what I do know is the next time the topic comes up, they have to consider what I told them 
in addition to the falsehoods they hear and read uh, every day. So I find that all the time I spend trying to convince people carbon dioxide is a good thing and man is not having a negative impact or any impact on the climate of our planet uh, is worth the time and effort that I put into it. Mm -hmm. And you know, Jay, you might remember in 1984, they wanted to make it so that it was not just unforgivable to say certain things. It was unforgivable to even think those things. So I think the more that listeners bring up the alternative point of view, the correct point of view that the CO2 coalition is promoting, CO2 is not pollution. We're not causing dangerous climate change. There's lots of polar bears, extreme weather is not increasing, all that sort of thing. I think the more you bring it up, the more you break through a barrier psychologically and it liberates other people to think the same way or to at least express their points of view. And, you know, I'll give you an example. If you go to a public event, I always make sure I'm like as soon as possible to the microphone in the question period afterwards, because what I find it does, if early in the question period, you start to bring up alternative points of view, then you see others in the audience are less reluctant to go to the microphone and do the same. If you wait to the end, you're the only one doing it. So yeah, I think we have to break through this kind of barrier psychologically and make it so that it's politically acceptable. I like to tell everybody two things with regard to climate. One, that models are useless, a joke. They have no value at all because they're not created uh, with enough understanding or knowledge of the system, and two, whatever impact man could have on the climate of the earth, uh, we really can never calculate what it would be, and whatever it would be, we know for sure it is insignificant. A very, very simple message. I'm, I'm happy to say that we also have some more of these scientific reports focusing on specific regions of the country coming out. We have Virginia we've done already. We've already done Pennsylvania as well. Uh, we have the Midwest coming out. It's, it's being edited right now. And then we will continue on and focus on other parts of the country. So we will continue to work around the country to provide specific scientific information that people in these regions can use when they're having to face huge new proposals by misled leaders in their state that could potentially have grave economic harm and really very little to negligible economic benefit. Mm -hmm. You know, this evening, there's a debate between the candidates who want to be leader of the Conservative Party of Canada. And what they do, and I'm interested to know if they're doing this in the United States, too, they're strongly supporting energy, Canadian energy, fossil fuels in particular. But at the same time, they're either directly or indirectly boosting the climate scare, you know, talking about, oh, we're going to have carbon sequestration and move to electric vehicles and get off of coal. So it strikes me that you know, on the one hand, they're supporting energy, but on the other hand, they're supporting the main thing that's killing our pipelines and our natural gas fracking and, and uh, you know, our oil sands. Do you have Republicans doing the same thing in the U.S. where they're supporting the climate scare, but then also supporting energy that's being attacked by the climate scare? Yeah, I often wonder to what degree some of the more conservative members of Congress truly believe in the climate scare, even when they pay lip service to it. I'm not certain. I, I know there's, there's so much hypocrisy out there. I know people pushing for more green energy would then turn around and try to block not only pipelines, but electronic transmission lines that would be needed to 
connect the grid, you would have more of a, a diffuse area collecting energy. You'd have solar farms out in rural areas and wind farms out in rural areas that would have to be connected to the cities. It would certainly require a lot more wiring, which would require a lot more mining. It certainly would require more batteries, which would create the need for more minerals. And at the same time, the same people would be opposed to the mines. They'd be opposed to putting up <laughs> yeah. these That's transmission right. lines. So there's a lot of hypocrisy. And when you speak of Canada with your, I believe it's your tar sands up there and trying to get that oil, oil to market. Oil, I call them oil sands. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't know why people would oppose a pipeline, which to me would seem to be the least invasive of transport methods with train. You could certainly have a spill there too. And uh, really when you cancel a pipeline like the Keystone XL, you're just rerouting the oil through a different route. You're, I think you could potentially even be increasing the emissions needed to bring that to market, not decreasing. So I think there's a whole lot of hypocrisy going on with this push to, to try to make things more green. Yeah. And, you know, even the use of the word green energy, they're saying that green energy is energy that produces less CO2. <laughs> Wouldn't you say, Ryan, that it's, it's the exact opposite? I mean, green energy is energy that produces more CO2 because it produces more plant growth. So, I mean, it's coming back to the language. Conservatives are unfortunately using the language of our opponents. I wrote an article with a colleague uh, this very weak at America Out Loud. Uh, and my colleague, uh, Rich Kozlovich, came up with an interesting analogy about a green energy. Uh, he made the connection between a, a fake gold wedding ring, which after a while turns your finger green. And uh, that is exactly how fake everything that is promoted as being green these days uh, is. The left is promoting things that are green, uh, they're fake, just like a gold ring that turns your, your finger green and something people need to think about. Let's close with one uh, question because I read your phenomenal article on strategic minerals when you were working with the government. Could you give our audience a, a summary about what our problems are with regard to strategic minerals? Yeah, I'm happy to do that. So I, I had the privilege and pleasure to work at the Department of the Interior, and I had oversight over U.S. Geological Survey, and there they created the most comprehensive report on minerals since the 1970s. And so we kind of timed the release of that report to go along with our efforts on critical minerals in, in terms of trying to urge the, the federal government and various agencies to allow for the greater exploration and, and uh, access to these minerals. Uh, we, we have quite an issue with having the supply chain go heavily through China. A great example of a, a critical issue that we face with regard to the mineral development is with rare earth elements. We have a mine called Mountain Pass in California where we can extract these minerals. However, once they're extracted, we have to ship them over to China for further processing. Oh, Our man. regulations and laws have been so prohibitively expensive to develop not only the mine itself, but also the, the process of refining these minerals, that it's, it's really forcing us to rely upon our adversaries like China. And I think it's a dangerous position to be in, particularly if we were to end up having to engage in a war or some other uh, economic 
uh, dispute with them and, and have to still rely upon them to provide our minerals. So this is a solvable problem. I believe there's a number of steps we can take, but uh, yeah, I was very pleased to try to come forth with some ideas when I worked at the Department of the Interior to help help bring uh, awareness. And I'm even pleased to say that the Biden administration has picked up on the need for critical minerals. And I, I hope that they can take some reasonable steps to improve the situation as well. So do you think they're gonna start processing them more in America? The Defense Production Act can be used to process some of these, not only rare earth elements, but other minerals, uh, if they can determine that there is a, a need for our nation's defense to do that. So that, that is one way to set up a pilot program. So that, that is one step forward. Uh, I, I also think there are mines that are well along in the permitting process. And I think that that process should be expedited. There's the National Environmental Protection Act, NEPA, and there's a process of creating the environmental impact statements that takes so long. And to the extent we can streamline that, that would be very productive. Mm -hmm. So if you were to forecast, how long do you think it will be before we can become the major source of the refining of the rare earths metals? Is this something that's 10 years off or could we do it more, more quickly? I wish I could say it was 10 years off, but I've heard of mining projects that are 10 years just in the permitting. And oh. so I, I think that I'm cautiously optimistic that some, some of our friendly uh, allies like Australia and I've even heard Greenland for rare earth elements is willing to, to open up a mine there. I'm, I'm hoping that this can be a collaborative effort among uh, allied nations to really increase the supply of these minerals. And I, I would think that people wanting to build car batteries would be completely supportive of this because those minerals would be certainly needed for that and for, for the causes of building wind turbines and solar panels as well. So for, for many reasons, I would hope that we can all collectively come together and, and do the common sense thing and streamline this permitting for, for these mines. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Okay, well, that's a great place to end and an optimistic point for the future. Our interviewee this week has been Ryan Nichols, Vice President of Operations of the CO2 Coalition at CO2Coalition.org. So this is Dr. Jay Lair and Tom Harris signing out from the other side of the story. Thank you.